You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 2nd of December 2022 on Monocle 24. US President Joe Biden offers to meet Russian President Vladimir Putin to discuss Ukraine, the unwise company kept by former US President Donald Trump, and Sight and Sound unveils its once-a-decade list of the greatest films ever made. Put the champagne on ice, Catwoman. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday and it's mostly our weekly in-house daily. And those Monocle staffers who didn't think of claiming that they were putting in a shift as Santa Claus at the local children's hospital include Chris Chermak and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. They'll discuss the day's big stories, plus we'll have the latest from Kiev and we'll visit the Alaska Biennale. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and we will start with Ukraine. US President Joe Biden suggested yesterday that he might be amenable to meeting his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin, if the latter was serious about ending the war in Ukraine. President Putin has responded today by offering a condition for talks which he knows full well nobody will agree to. Recognition of Russia's annexation earlier this year of four Ukrainian oblasts on top of its 2014 seizure of Crimea. Well, I'm joined today from Kiev by the TV journalist Maharita Varadoska. Um, Maharita, first of all, uh, we've, we've asked about this before. We're just keeping up with it. How are things in Kiev tonight? Yeah. Hello, Andrew. So it's, it's actually better now. We haven't had the shelling um, just uh, for a week about, I think. So we have had time to fix our uh, energetic system so now we have not that uh, huge power outages and uh, our mayor is actually trying to equip the city for instance uh, today he told in case of new blackout uh, all the public transport uh, will be free we have now almost like 500 mobile hidden posts where you can get some food water and power to charge your phone and so on uh, so it's actually kind of better and, and are people confident that they can get through the winter? Is there any talk of people leaving Kiev or are people mostly determined to stick this out? People just trying to uh, adjust their apartments or try to move to the outskirts of uh, the Kiev, like um, to the houses where you can have your own equipment for heating the house. But uh, I don't see people like, you know, moving to... Uh, other countries or uh, going to the West, uh, people just staying where they are and trying to prepare as much as they can. Uh, we came into this item obviously talking about the, the diplomatic machinations going on in the outside world and uh, President Putin's suggestion that he would talk about Ukraine if the world uh, would recognise the annexation of those four oblasts, which obviously nobody is going to do. But how does this? In, how do stories like this land in Ukraine now? Does anybody still care what Vladimir Putin thinks? There is not that much to uh, tell about because no one cares what Putin thinks. No one talks about Putin here. I mean, we 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 don't we don't think that his words worth anything. So um, I don't. I can tell you for sure that none of Ukrainians will accept the annexation of 
our territories. That's impossible, including our government. No one is going to do that. Because this, as you'll be aware, is a, a, an idea that gets circulated uh, in those pockets of European politics that don't really want to suffer through a cold winter, and also among conservative politicians in the United States. This idea that at some point uh, Ukraine and Russia will have to talk, which will mean Ukraine giving something up. Um, do you think there's any appetite in Ukraine for that at all, even if it was put to Ukraine as a, you know, as a condition of peace? This sounds crazy to me. <laughs> and uh, I mean, someone is cold. Really? Look at our guys at Bakhmut in the next region. They are cold and they are fighting for the whole Europe. So I would say that no one, uh, and I can tell you with, all my confidence, no one will accept any of Russia's conditions. We have our conditions. We are ready to talk. And our president have, has told that so many times that we are, we are willing to have peace, but we have our conditions. We want our territories back. How it was since 1991, we want Crimea back. We want all the East back. We want everything back because this is our country. And if we give up now, it will continue later, sooner or later. We don't want to live under pressure of Russian aggression for the rest of for the rest of what? Of of the world? We have been living like that for three hundred years, if you learn our history. So this should end at some point. And and we are going to fight, I don't know, until uh until I don't know, every Ukrainian dies. Because this is the only way. There was another story uh, in Ukraine today that I wanted to ask about a, a domestic political development. This is a new yeah. Ukrainian government decree on Russian-affiliated religious organizations. What exactly is the new rule and what impact is it going to have? Okay, let me try to explain you. Um, this is this is a bit complicated, but <laughs> the, the, the history about uh, with, with Russian church in Ukraine uh, is pretty long and it has had the huge impact on Ukrainian people because, as you know, church is a huge tool of propaganda and Russia uses their church every day to impact people and they did the same uh, in um, they did the same in Ukraine. So Zelensky implemented the decision of the National Security Council regarding restrictive measures and sanctions against uh, the Moscow. Uh, patriarchate uh, church. So um, decision of the National Security Council uh, stipulates that within two months, uh, the cabinet of ministers uh, must submit to our uh, parliament uh, for co consideration a draft law on making it impossible for religious organizations connected to the Russian Federation uh, to operate in Ukraine. So this is the end game. And now we have um, like security structures, um, they should step up uh, measures to identify and counter uh, Russian special services in Ukrainian churches, but which is going on now. We have a lot of uh, in, in inspections, what, so to speak, like people uh, from security services uh, check uh, uh, everyone and uh, they, they find pretty interesting things. Uh, like connections between uh, our priests and Russian priests that um, even flew to Russia to get some instructions. They they printed uh, propaganda papers to spread among 
people who visit churches just to, to have an impact. So this is pretty huge thing for uh, for Ukrainian church. We've got our independence of Ukrainian church in 2019, uh, but it, it actually, in fact, wasn't that independent if, if you see uh, what's going on now. But uh, now we are cleaning everything up. So in, in the future, maybe not in the future, in the nearest future, it will be huge for us. Uh, there was, of course, that development earlier this year, I think in May, when the Ukrainian Orthodox Church uh, announced that it was separating, declaring independence from the Russian Orthodox Church. That aside, has the Ukrainian Church been uh, supportive of the government in this war? Is it, is it a factor in Ukraine's defence? Oh, that's, that's tough for me to answer this question, um, but um, I'll try to say um, at some point, I think uh, church, um, Ukrainian Orthodox Church plays a huge role in this war. If to talk about people's um, hope, because mm. we pray a lot for our soldiers, and this is the, the biggest part of, uh, uh, of church in this war. Um, for, for Ukrainians, uh, since we're very re- religious, uh, it's very important to, uh, to go and pray for everyone they know are fighting and those who don't fight. I remember, I recall one situation, uh, I wanted to, um, in the beginning of war, I wanted to find an apartment in the west of Ukraine for my friends, so I called one woman from west of Ukraine and western people are like, enormously religious in Ukraine and and she couldn't answer the phone she couldn't pick up because she texted me I'm praying for our soldiers and I have a shift like four hours praying in a row so that's that's the role of church I think now uniting people and and praying for hope praying for soldiers Maharita Varadoska in Kiev thank you very much for joining us you're listening to The Daily Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. You're listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. And for a look now at what's making headlines in the United States, I'm joined by Monocle's Washington, D.C. correspondent, Chris Chermak. Um, Chris, first of all, a bit of a follow-up to the discussion we were just having with our correspondent there in Kiev. Uh, this was this thing that President Biden floated during a joint press conference with President Emmanuel Macron that he might be amenable uh, to talking to Vladimir Putin in certain circumstances. Um, how serious do you think he was? Or was he saying that in the anticipation that Putin would do what he has done uh, and imposed conditions which nobody's going to agree to? Well, look, Andrew, I, I think uh, the, the key almost in what Joe Biden said came just before he said it, when he said, let me choose my words very carefully. And then he launched into his comments about being potentially prepared to meet with Vladimir Putin. But yes, only if there was really a willingness to end this war, which he said he did not see. So in that sense, yes, I I don't think it was an offer for a meeting at this point. I think it was more of a tactical choice by, by Joe Biden to say that he is somebody who is prepared to talk 
when the right conditions are potentially there. Uh, I think he follows in that vein, you know, from from his his predecessor uh, Barack Obama as well, who said he's also willing to meet with adversaries. So I I think it's it's worth seeing it in that regard. It did not sound to me like he had any new information of a willingness from Vladimir Putin to change course. And it's also just, I think, important to note from from that perspective, you know, you did have Olaf Scholz uh, calling Vladimir Putin. Emmanuel Macron has spoken with Vladimir Putin many times. So the Europeans have been willing to engage. I, I think there was maybe a little bit of a sense from Joe Biden that he has to say that if there were conditions which are currently not there currently, uh, he would be willing to meet with Vladimir Putin. But I think it's a, a very long way off, if if at all. Uh, We should also look at the current travails of former U.S. President Donald Trump. And I I mean, if either of us, I suspect, had a dollar for every time we have rhetorically asked the question, is this it for Donald Trump? We would be extremely (laughs) rich men at this point. But is it possible that at last the company he chooses to keep is catching up with him? You know what, Andrew? No, I don't. I don't think this is the point where we say, "Is this it?" Uh, it is interesting. You're referring, of course, to this this dinner that he had at Mar-a-Lago with Kanye West or Ye, uh, who brought along a white nationalist in, in Nick Fuentes and. You know, I I think perhaps part of the reason I would say this is not it is uh, Donald Trump. It it does say something about where Donald Trump stands in the party currently. First of all, the fact that he could not be quite as bombastic as he usually is after this meeting. All he tried to say was, well, I didn't know who this guy was. I wasn't he wasn't invited by me. He came along with Kanye West. I didn't know what you know, what what his role was. So he's sort of backpedaled in a way that he doesn't normally have to. And then when you look at the reaction from Republicans, I think when you when you speak to that point of, you know, would a dime for every time we say, is this it? You know, you, we haven't really seen even now the the sort of complete turning of the Republican Party against Donald Trump as a result of this meeting with Nick Fuentes and Kanye West. You had some, yes, moderates mostly who came out criticizing Donald Trump explicitly for it. Many others, though, did still take the line similar to Donald Trump saying, well, he didn't know who he was. We condemn Nick Fuentes in the strongest possible terms, but we think that Donald Trump does as well. Uh, and so that was the line you heard from Kevin McCarthy, the, the minority or the soon-to-be majority speaker of the House of Representatives, for example, and others. Uh, the, the ones who say that Donald Trump is dead as a result of this meeting, his chances came from people like Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, who already does not have a good, very good relationship with Donald Trump. He did say that anyone who would meet with someone like Nick Fuentes has no chance of becoming president president. But uh, that was more punditry, I think, than, than and perhaps hope uh, than any real clear departure. I mean, have developments since the Mar-a-Lago dinner changed the calculus at all? Because of in light of, well, in light of what has transpired since, particularly in reference to Kanye West, Nick Fuentes now seems like the more judicious choice of dinner guest. 
<laughs> well, I, yes, I think that's that's obviously something many people are focusing on, or at least I find interesting in this, that because Nick Fuentes is such a figure, there's been less focus on Kanye West, who, of course, is running for pre- or is running for president as well in 2024 and reportedly asked, you know, Donald Trump to be his vice presidential running mate. He himself is, frankly, an anti-Semite or he has, you know, made many remarks in, in that regard as well. So, yes, Donald Trump. Trump's choice of dinner guests in both regards are uh, were, were not particularly strong. But again, I, I don't think the, the way that he has tried to distance himself, himself from these meetings, I don't think this is the be all and end all of whether he has a chance to become president or not. Well, returning to the present, uh, you did mention that there's about to be a new House Speaker, but there is, of course, about to be a new leader of the Democrats in the House of Representatives as well. There is absolutely there is there is a changing of the guard on the Democratic side that is that is really quite interesting. You know, just to back up briefly, I did mention Kevin McCarthy, who is likely to be the Speaker of the House, although that is not clear because there is a lot of discord among Republicans about who their next Speaker should be, and it's still not a hundred percent clear that he would actually get the votes to become Speaker in January. But yes, on the other side, what's interesting is usually there's a lot more discord with him the Democrats between the progressive wing of the caucus and the more moderate wings of the Democratic caucus. In this case, there really wasn't. We've had a dramatic changing of the guard. Nancy Pelosi, the very longtime leader uh, of the, uh, you know, Speaker of the House of Representatives, first woman Speaker of the House of Representatives, said that she would step down. And unanimously, uh, Democrats voted for Hakeem Jeffries. He will be the first African-American minority leader of the House chosen by the Democrats. Uh, He is from Brooklyn, also interesting for that matter, despite the fact that Democrats did not actually do particularly well in these midterms in New York. They lost some ground to Republicans. You now have two Democrats from New York leading the House, uh, leading the uh, Congress in now Hakeem Jeffries in the House of Representatives and Chuck Schumer, the minority or majority leader, excuse me, in the Senate. So that also interesting. And yes, Hakeem Jeffries is somebody who's seems to have been quite easily able to rally the party around himself. He's 52 years old, so he is very much a changing of the guard from Nancy Pelosi, who was in her 80s. All of the sort of senior leadership of the uh, House Democrats stepped down in favor of a new generation. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes from from. January. Chris Chermack, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. We will have more right after this. You're listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. Now, once a decade since 1952, the British Film Institute's Sight and Sound magazine has published a poll proposing what is, at that given moment, the 100 greatest films of all time. The 2022 list has just been published, and joining me to reveal where Airplane 2 came in is Monocle 24's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Fernando, listeners who can recall the previous list will know that Vertigo 
came in at number one, perhaps appropriately given the title, was on top of the chart. Uh, is it still? It's not on the top ah. of the charts. But don't worry, if you're a Vertigo fan, actually, I can reveal that it's actually the number two film, according to the poll. And I have to say, I've seen Vertigo. I do think it's actually one of this, the greatest this, films This will time. go over very badly in the suburb in which I live, Fernando, Leytonstone, which was, of course the childhood home of Alfred Hitchcock. I'm sure they are in mourning. We are. There's there's a pub in Leytonstone called The Birds and the Hitchcock Hotel. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's actually a very... And I am a big fan of Hitchcock, so I'm, I will be visiting Leytonstone. But... Andrew, the interesting thing, look at the number one film, Jean Dillman. It's a Belgian film from the mid-70s. Mm. It was quite groundbreaking at the time. It's quite experimental as well. And that see, just... see, Fernando, in the cinematic world, groundbreaking and experimental are usually euphemisms for boring Well, I mean, the and cr- incomprehensible. The film critics here would disagree with you because the list became bigger. It's a very mm. iconic poll that Sight and Sound does every decade since 1952. And in a way, Citizen Kane won for five decades and it kind of solidified its image that was the best Mm. film of all time. So 10 years ago, when Vertigo became number one, it was a big story. But now, the fact that Gene Dillman, you know, was directed by a female director, Chantal Ackerman, it shows how society is changing. Some films are being revisited by critics. It's an interesting change. This is what I wanted to ask. Given that the new number one has been emptying theatres since 1975, why has it only just now roared into top spot well i'll tell you one thing as well that i had a chat with mike williams the editor of sight and sound many of those films they're actually available on dvd on streaming Mm -hmm. more and more literally in the past some of those films were very hard to find it was just very rare copies or, or 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 impossible for the average viewer to find them but that's not the case today so i think from the 100 films in the list you can easily go to any streaming services or there are ways to watch the film so in kind of opened up the list for many people, including the the critics that voted for it. Do you think, though, that this poll has responded to criticism, and we've seen this in a lot of film judging environments, the Oscars and so on, criticism that it has been far too US-centric, far too white, far too male for too long. If you look at the current number 10, apart from the Belgian number one, we have films made in Japan, France, Hong Kong, the Soviet Union. It does seem to be a lot more mixed up than it might have been 10, 20, certainly 30 or 40 years ago. Absolutely. So less American films, more female directors, and even more recent films, I have to say. Of course, listen, I'm telling you this, but there are classics that are still here. You know, there's still The Godfather, as I said, Vertigo. But slightly newer films like Mulholland Drive here at number eight. That's exciting for me because that is, of course, my fifth form English classmate at Mossman High School, Naomi Watts, right there at number eight. Exactly. I mean, what a film that was. I'm, I'm sure she talks about the fact that she sat next to me often. Of course, of course, I'm sure she does. Or Bertravel at number seven as well. So, yes, it's a varied list. And they wanted to be international. I think they had a very small pool of film critics and this time they wanted to get different people, a little bit more diverse, more international. I personally think it's a good list. And I haven't seen many of those films, Andrew. I haven't seen Jim Dillman, the number one film. So I can't really comment on it. But, you know, I will watch it. It's, when, when you say you think it's a good list, though, 
are there films that you think have been somewhat hard done by? Are there personal favourites of yours that are lower down than you think they ought to be or perhaps ignored entirely? There are some that have been ignored, you know. So La Dolce Vita is one of my favourite films. It's at number 60 here. But I have some, I think there's some populist choices. Films like even Jaws, for example. It's a fantastic film. So I think the list could have been a little bit more populist. But, you know, they will review the top 250, actually, in January. So who knows? Maybe some of my favorite films will be in there as well. And, Andrew, in fact, we're going to play a little clip of my interview with Mike Williams, the editor-in-chief of Sight and Sound. The whole interview will be available on the stack tomorrow, but we have an exclusive here for you, for the listeners of the Monaco Daily. We must talk about the new issue and the review of the greatest films of all time, the poll that you do every 10 years. And that just shows the importance of sight and sound because, you know, there's been stories from the New York Times to even my home country, Brazil, literally everywhere. People are talking about the new number one that just shows kind of the power of this poll. I mean, I think it's in a way quite unique among this type of polls. Yeah, I mean, it's it's huge. Mm. Like it was, again, to go back to when I arrived it was something that I could see looming on the horizon. It felt distant enough to be something to work towards as like a bit of a line in the sand of where we were as a magazine. But really quickly, probably to do with COVID and then having our big redesign project, I felt like I put my head down to get the redesign done, lifted it up, and all of a sudden it was time to do the poll, and it just really came upon us. And in those moments of putting it together and polling a whole world of film critics and the whole world of filmmakers, you know that this is a big deal already just from being a reader, but when you're in the thick of it and you really get to understand how much this means to people and how much it sets the rhythm of what, film discourse will be for the next 10 years and how the results of this poll they don't just have an impact in that they get people talking for a week they have an impact in they actually change deep perceptions of what is the film canon and what are the works that have resonated in the past you know the challenges to what has faded and why the the reasons behind new things emerging it's so huge and the interest in it announcement on thursday was just incredible the the bfi website crashed because so many people were trying to come to it it's like record traffic on the site all the advanced copies of the magazine have basically sold out already. We were one of the number one trending topics on Twitter. There's a sort of subsection of Twitter, which I'm sure you know, called Film Twitter, basically, yes. <laughs> which is an interesting place to observe any sort of discourse on film. And Film Twitter is definitely on fire right now, in a mostly good way. And it's, it's just amazing to see how much these results matter and just the tone that they set for the conversation, it's uh, incredible, really. And for me, this list serves as, as guidance. And I think that this year's number one, uh, more than ever, I've got to be honest with you, Mike, I haven't seen actually Gene uh, Dillman. I've seen, I've heard about the film. But, you know, looking at the list, I'm the kind of person who say, you know what, I actually must watch in the, in the coming months. I'm sure there'll be quite a lot of people actually like that as well. Yeah, I think that's what's quite amazing about it is that when we first started the list the first time it was held the poll was in 1952 and 67 people voted which I, I imagine in 1952 that felt like a lot of people they probably felt that that was polling you know a really wide range of opinions and it gradually as these things tend to do anything that is you know annual or you know like the world cup is on now every time the world cup is on it always has to be bigger and better than last time and that's been the 
idea with the poll is every 10 years, whoever's in control of it always wants to make it bigger than the last one. And for various reasons, you know, the obvious one is for the sense of like occasion. But in 2012 and now again in 2022, the main reason for making it bigger was to make it feel much more representative and inclusive of a wider range of opinions, experiences, just you know, nationalities, ethnicities, just having a much more representative voice. Fernando, that was you speaking to the editor of Sight and Sound. And let's plug that one more time. The full interview will be available tomorrow on the stack, which is, of course, that programme people listen to before the foreign desk comes on. But he is not the only person in the cinema world to whom you have lately been speaking. No, I spoke to the Dardenne brothers. They're iconic directors from Belgium. And Andrew, they're known for their powerful social realist drama. Really important directors. And their new film is coming out today, actually, in the UK. It's available across Europe. It's called Tori and Lukita. follows the story of a young boy, Tori, and a teenage girl, Lukita. They both left their home countries of Cameroon and Benin and they try to make a life in Belgium. It's tragic, it's realistic, but there is a sense of beauty as well with the relationship that those two kids have with each other. Well, let's hear it. The shock at the end is there also because of a denunciation, because we, it is an accusation we make, because it's shocking that nowadays in our democracy there are so many young children, unaccompanied minors, who just disappear because they don't have their paper. And we know that among migration that there is a criminal world and where, where criminals migrate with the intention of carrying on with criminal activities in a new country, but that's not the majority. And we know, and from knowing people and speaking to police, the majority are people who come to a country for a better chance to work and to get their papers, but to work, to go to school, and why not? What's the problem? I was going to ask, because at the same time that the films, your films in general, but especially Tori and Lokita, you know, there is this kind of very powerful, quite sad aspects of it as well, but they are quite, it can be quite idealistic because it looks to me that you do some sort of political cinema that kind of wants change as well, like real change in, in real life. And I guess here in Europe, we're dealing with the migration situation, which let's be honest, I don't see it an, an end to it very soon. So it's a very story of our times as well. Oui, le, le, oui, c'est vrai. It's true indeed that migration is one of the big things in our society nowadays that's not about to finish and stop. It's very much a question of our time and we see that that's around those questions of immigration that people get elected in different countries as well. It's always coming back round to migration. What can film do about it? Well, a film can make a viewer change things. Something happens in their mind, whether it's not necessarily political. It can be make you feel emotions that you haven't felt in a while. It can just upset you, but it changes you. As a spectator, you have a sort of secret conversation with yourself, with the film, and that can then help you become more human and maybe widen your thinking, widen you as a person, just make you more of a human being. Respire un peu autrement, respire un peu mieux, être un peu plus humain. 
voudrais que ma mère soit là. Je suis là, moi. That was the Dardenne brothers speaking to Fernando Augusto Pacheco earlier with the help of an interpreter. Now, finally on today's show, Alaska is well known for many exports, salmon, oil and king crab among them, but perhaps less so for contemporary art. The Anchorage Museum hopes to change that perception. For some 50 years, the leading cultural institution in Alaska's largest city has hosted a statewide survey of contemporary art. The current Alaska Biennale opened in November and runs through March. Monocle's Gregory Scruggs spoke with the museum's chief curator, Francesca Dubrock, and sent this report. Alaska is a vast state. Very little of it is road accessible. There are artists practicing all over the state in very remote places. And the biennial does provide an opportunity for artists to send work and for it to be displayed together um, in a way where people can see what each other are working on. We keep the labels for the work very brief in this exhibition but you'll notice that we do include the hometown of every artist participating in the show because we think that a geographic profile is actually a really interesting part of the exhibition. This work is called We Leave Our Mark on the Future by Austin Park Hill. He is a painter based in Homer, Alaska. This work is depicting a friend of his who is originally from Utqiagvik, which is the most northern town in Alaska, and he used to live there. And what you're seeing in We Leave Our Mark on the Future is a pregnant Anupiak woman with facial tattoos kneeling in some tire tracks on the snow and gently resting her hand on her pregnant belly. It's a really beautiful, very vividly rendered, almost photorealistic painting. This piece is part of a series that Austin is exploring, dealing with climate change. He's depicting people with very kind of like warm skin tones. You see this sort of almost like sunset light that's bathing the figure so her skin looks warmer than it would under normal like flat fluorescent light so you have these warm skin tones and placing these bodies in sort of ice and snow and contrasting the two you also see these tire tracks that have sort of ripped up the the snow underneath the woman that are obviously also another pretty strong reference to humans impact on our surroundings and the warming climate. So it's not an overt climate statement, but it's definitely dealing with that. And there is quite a bit of work in the exhibition that is also dealing with climate crisis from a variety of different perspectives. I feel that the indigenous artists working in Alaska today are the ones making some of the strongest, most powerful political statements about where we're at as a society and where we should be going. There are folks working within Alaska that are now known, have very visible presence on a national art stage. Some folks that you may recognize, Nicholas Galanin, was in the last edition of the Whitney Biennial. He's on the air at the SeaTac Airport in Seattle doing land acknowledgement. You know, he seems to be everywhere these days. There are a lot of artists that are using their visibility and their platform 
to also affect social change beyond just the art world. Folks like Nicholas that are advancing efforts in land acknowledgement, in the land back movement, in indigenous rights. So there's a lot of exciting work going on. And I'm grateful that collecting the work of contemporary indigenous artists is a priority for this institution. There's something that Alaska has been, Alaskans have grappled with through time, which is this sense of sort of being on the periphery. I think that that's a perspective that we try to flip in our work here, which is not that we are on the periphery. We're really at the center of this really exciting circumpolar conversation. And I think that the work we do positions us in that space of very much being a part of a global dialogue that's happening around the most urgent and most pressing issues that are facing all of us on this planet right now. That was Francesca de Brock speaking to Gregory Scruggs, and that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our guests today, Maharita Varadovska, Chris Chermak, and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean, with editing assistance from Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening, and have a good weekend. Monocle.